Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And today we are revisiting a question that seems endless. Are charter schools public or are they private? (laughs) I don't know. I feel like a lot of people are going to say, I think this one has been settled. They're they're public schools with, you know, some characteristics that make them private-like. And I think they'll be a little surprised if they haven't heard about this court case. I think they're going to be very surprised. And so, Jack, the case is somewhat complicated. People may have heard a little bit about it, but I want you to just sketch out as briefly as you can the broad contours of the case before us. You have never asked me to go into sufficient depth and detail and offer all of the analyses that I would actually like to make. I'll just I'll just observe that. It's not a criticism. That, sir, is because the show has a time limit. <laughs> Okay, so there is a charter network in North Carolina called Charter Day. And what Charter Day wants to be able to do uh, beyond just force uh, young women to wear skirts to school because they are, quote, fragile vessels, is they want to be able to advance the interests of a majority of parents, even if they do so in violation of students' rights and in violation of the desires of some parents of young people at that school. So essentially, what they are arguing is that parents have a right to send their children to state-funded schools that engage in unconstitutional discrimination. That's a weird right. That's a very weird right, but they're claiming that people have the right to do that. And um, the the courts that have heard this previously have disagreed, have called that some very bizarre reasoning. And now they are headed to the Supreme Court. Uh, And their argument is that Charter Day is not a public school. It may receive state funding, but it's really more of a private school. That's the argument. And this is illustrative of a broader shift in the school choice movement away from charter schools and the idea of public school choice and towards a vision of a privatized system in which some schools may receive dollars via government funding, either directly from state local, federal government, or from parents who themselves received money uh, from various forms of government. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a shift in the broader school choice movement, which we have been seeing develop for at least the last six years, right, since Betsy DeVos became Secretary of Education. Um, and it's one that has a lot of importance, not just for the future of charter schools, but also for the future of public schools. That was really well done, Jack. And I would just add one gentle correction. So we don't know that it's absolutely going to the Supreme Court, but it sure looks like it. Sure, it sure looks like it, right? right. Yeah, they, they, they have pandered in all the right ways. I I think it's headed there. 
Well, Jack, the thing that most amused me when I was reading about the case were these references to fragile vessels. And I couldn't help but think that I know somebody who's kind of a fragile vessel. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's me. I'm just looking for somebody to take care of me at the end of the day, Jennifer. Okay, you've got the basics of the legal case that is the inspiration for this episode. There are skirts and chivalry and an old-timey classical education. But why does all of this matter? Here to explain are two experts. Preston Green is the John and Maria Niag Professor of Urban Education at the University of Connecticut, where he is also a professor of educational leadership and law. Bruce Baker is professor and chair of the Department of Teaching and Learning at the University of Miami. Together and separately, they have written extensively on such issues as school funding, school choice, and educational inequality. And they have been writing and frankly warning for years that this tangled question of whether or not charter schools are in fact public has serious implications. And the first thing that Preston wants us to understand is that this case is a big deal, starting with the constitutional question at the heart of it. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause apply to kids who attend charter schools? The answer of North Carolina's Charter Day School is nope. We don't have to follow this because we are not state actors. We are not governmental actors. Rather, we are a private school for which the Constitution doesn't apply. And the question now is that this case has gone up the Fourth Circuit, a panel found that the charter school was not a state actor, but then the full Fourth Circuit concluded otherwise, saying that the charter school was a state actor. But now the charter school is appealing to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court may seriously take this case. The case of Peltier versus Charter Day School, Inc. centers on a now familiar debate. Are charter schools public or not? And Preston says that even people who have strong opinions on that question don't necessarily understand why this case matters so much. I think everybody who is not in the know, who has just listened to the language about charter schools being public, are just surprised that this is a thing, that this is an issue. But many of us who've been writing about this over the years have been pointing out that this is a big issue and one that has been very contentious and has a great deal of implications for law and policy, you know, for public school systems and for school choice programs going forward. And I've been saying, pay attention to this case. To understand how we ended up here in the first place, we need a brisk overview of the increasingly complicated landscape that is education in this country. Bruce Baker, take it away. We have this range of different types of schools from, on the one hand, schools that are directly operated by, run by the government, staffed by basically government employees, 
public schools and magnet schools within the public system all kind of fall into that realm. And at the far other end of the spectrum, we've got, you know, stuff like homeschooling and purely private schools where the parents are paying tuition. And then in the middle, we got private schools, schools that are run by private individuals that take tuition, but also take kids who are receiving subsidies from the government to support that tuition. There's still clearly privately run schools with private employees, you know, governed by a, a board of private citizens. And then we have this really messy space in between of, of charter schools. Which brings us back to the central question at the heart of this episode about the relative publicness of charter schools. Bruce says that while there's plenty of gray in that spectrum of schools he just laid out, the issue of where charters fall in that spectrum is actually pretty straightforward. I actually think it's it's not that messy. You know, once you, for example, have let private entities be the governing organizations that decide who can even have a state charter rather than the state itself, you've put a private entity in that space. It's it's no longer government controlled. Once you have a board of private citizens who are then given the opportunity to oversee and run this school and hire a private management company and the teacher's contracts are with the management company and not with a government entity, so the teachers aren't public employees, then it's very clearly, you know, not much different than a private school that happens to be taking kids on publicly funded vouchers. The confusion seems to have been embedded in this kind of rhetoric of charter schools are public schools, despite the operational details that suggest that they are clearly not. Okay, back to the case. As Jack touched on at the start of the episode, at issue is a dress code. Charter Day requires girls to wear skirts because they are fragile vessels. Three students and their parents sued under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, to which the school said, that amendment doesn't apply to us because we're a private entity. And at least one part of that argument is correct. In a government-operated system, that's where constitutional rights apply, either for kids or for employees. Our rights to free speech, to due process, to equal protection, all those you know pesky little things that are laid out in the Bill of Rights of the Constitution, those are things that our government can't interfere with. Our government can't treat us unequally. Our government can't deny us due process before imposing some kind of a penalty or taking away other rights. Our government can't interfere with our free speech or free exercise of religion. And our government can't push a religion on us. Private entities can do that all they want. They're not part of the government. I mean, all that stuff was designed to keep our government from intruding on us, but that's why the distinction matters for schools. Now, while you may be hearing about this for the first time, this issue about students who attend charter schools having fewer rights than their public school counterparts is not new to our distinguished guests. Preston has been sounding the alarm about this for years, and I am not exaggerating here. He wrote an article arguing that charter schools were out on a constitutional limb back in 2001. And his concern has always been that while the parents of kids who attend private schools sign a contract that makes it very clear just how few rights students have, charter school parents are often left in the dark. Because many of them don't understand this, they may be unwittingly signing away their rights by attending a charter school because they're just assuming that a charter school will have these protections. But as we have been saying this term public school does not really have the meaning that many people think that they have. 
what we have been trying to do in our research is to make people aware of what they may lose by attending these schools. In other words, charter school students already have fewer rights. Now this case seeks to officially plant charters on the other side of the private entity divide, which means that the civil rights and constitutional protections that are attached to public schools will no longer apply. Bruce says that it's not just the principle of the thing that matters here, but the sheer number of kids we're talking about. In the whole system of schooling, you got about 10 to 12 percent of kids in the private schools and homeschooling, some of whom have public subsidies. We got about five or six percent of kids in charter schools. And it matters, like in, in Florida, for example, it matters where the charters fall in that. If, if the charters are part of the government operated, if they're part of the public system, then it's only 15 percent of the kids who've signed away their rights by just putting them under the contract with a private school. But if the charters are also not government entities, then it's 25% of the kids. And in Arizona, it's more like a third of the kids who don't have these protections. And it tends to disproportionately be kids from low-income and minority families. So that's why it's a big deal. So, Jack, you have a favorite analogy that you like to use whenever we're talking about something school choice related, and I actually roll my eyes because you use it's this. It's not an analogy, Jennifer. It's a metaphor. You use it so often, and it is airport related. Do you know of what I'm <laughs> what I'm referring? <laughs> no, I have no idea, Jennifer. You like to say that basically the centrist Democrats who were so keen on charter schools in the 90s basically built the runway and that Betsy DeVos and her ilk are now landing their private planes right on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, regular listeners will know that I have invoked people like Cory Booker, right, in talking about centrist Democrats who were big supporters of school choice and then who were really surprised when people like Betsy DeVos wanted to do things like use the idea of school choice to advance private school vouchers. And I think that that metaphor of, you know, helping lay a runway and then being shocked when people start landing airplanes on it is a good one, but maybe I'll use a different one here to talk about this case. Um, you know, I think that a Trojan horse metaphor is apt. Uh, it can be a fraught metaphor, but, you know, I think that this is a real pivot for charters in terms of their messaging, right? That they were able to make real inroads in public education over the past couple of decades because they argued that they were public schools. Right? It was harder to push back against them than it might have been to push back against, say, private school voucher schemes. But now they're essentially saying, surprise, we aren't public schools after all. And I do think that there's something interesting in this in that a lot of people who have been duped by the policy elites who are interested in school choice as a mechanism for pulling apart public education, right? So, so there are those people, and I think Betsy DeVos is illustrative of them, but there are charter supporters who were also duped by that, who thought that really the idea was 
innovation and, you know, finding new ways to educate young people and meeting needs that hadn't previously been met. And, and I think that there's a reckoning coming within the charter school movement where previously you saw some strange alliances, right? Like market ideologues and civil rights supporters um, standing and sharing a stage together. I think that that is going to play out in some interesting and complicated ways. But right now what we're seeing is that for the policy elites, this was really about gaining entry into the public education system and then sort of opening up the wooden horse and letting out all of the soldiers who are really fighting not for innovation or opportunities, but for things like religious education um, or, you know, the right to exclude students on the basis of things like identity characteristics. And so this shape-shiftiness is just, it's a classic identifier of an ideological endgame being the real motivator here, right? This isn't about pragmatism. This isn't about looking at evidence and making decisions based on, you know, empirical studies. And there were a lot of claims about that, right? Like, look at the test scores. It's all about test score. You know, it's not. It's not. And and now they're being quite clear that that has nothing to do with it. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that word innovation because it actually like it pops up constantly in these various, you know, op-eds and briefs that that conservatives are filing that, you know, that the innovation is defined as being able to not apply the 14th amendment. Right. And or the innovation is the idea of a school that that looked like it did 50 years ago, which is pretty funny when you yeah. when you think about all the factory style lingo that's hurled around. But I got, you know, as I was reading all this stuff, I kept thinking, you know, it's not going to be that long before we look back on the time of charter schools sort of wistfully, because I don't think they're going to be around. Do you? Right, right. I think that they will be like dame schools, right? Like something that historians of education are very familiar with. Dame schools, for those who don't know, were schools run by women in the 19th century. Uh, Often, you know, a woman who had gotten a high school diploma and had decided to educate kids out of her house. Um, Charter schools, I think, will be like that. Maybe not next year, right? We'll all have recent memories of them. Maybe not in 10 years. But the way that things are going... Right? If charter schools are recognized as basically being state-funded private schools, um, and even if they aren't, right, uh, there are private school voucher bills that are rolling out in state after state, which essentially render charters moot. Uh, and and I, to come back to this point that I made a moment ago about a division within the charter community, you know, I think it, it will be hard for charter leaders to watch the policy elites who have been their champions in Washington, D.C. or in state capitals, who have helped with the flow of funds, to watch them move on 
to support for private schools because whatever the challenges around charter schools, there are a lot of charter schools that do good work. And there are a lot of people who work in charter schools, charter school leaders, charter school educators, who show up every day because they care about young people and particularly about young people who haven't been well served in this country. Um, I think that they are going to be, in many ways, left hung out to dry, right? Because they're not going to have any champions. And and that'll be interesting to watch, but interesting in, uh, I think, a, a really sad and challenging way. Back to our guests. There's another reason why the debate about the relative publicness of charter schools is so important right now. You know that treaty that we're always talking about in this show, where back in the 90s, Democrats and Republicans rallied around charter schools while walking back some of their other priorities, like support for teachers unions in the D column and a preference for religious education in column R? Well, part of that deal was that charter schools were supposed to be non-sectarian. Preston says that if charter schools are defined as non-state actors, religious charters are the next step. If a charter school is private, then a court can very easily conclude that uh, religious entities get to operate these charter schools and that they have to be religious because they're no different from a voucher program. This finding has major implications, not just in red states, But in blue states, this has major implications in blue states that may end up with such a finding that charter schools or private schools may have to allow for religious charter schools. And this is, again, a major complication that many of them are not anticipating. And just like that, we've gone from the question of how public charter schools really are to the far more fundamental matter of religion v. state. Bruce, make it all make sense, please. What we've had is a series of dominoes fall that link this kind of publicness, privateness thing, the whole voucher versus charter versus district schools thing, and how religion sneaks in there. In 2002, the U.S. Supreme Court said that It's okay for government funds to flow to kids and families that then use them for private religious schools. That's not the government promoting or advancing religion. It's just the government giving money to families who then choose to use it for religious schools, religious education. The the door is open. You can send kids off to religious schools on public financing. Now, the next domino that falls is like, you know, over 15 years later, and the court decides that if there's a program in your state or city or town, any level of government that provides funding to any private entities, whether it's, you know, to refurbish playgrounds or run schools, you can't exclude some entities just because they're churches or religious institutions. But the next domino fell pretty rapidly that in Montana, there was a system that provided tuition tax credit dollars to kids to attend private schools, but not to include religious schools And the court applied the same logic to say, no, you can't keep the religious schools out of this mix. The next domino fell last summer in the case of Carson versus Macon, which centered on a main program in which the state funds private academies to educate kids who live in rural communities too small to run their own public high schools. Now, according to the Supreme Court, Maine must also pay for kids to attend private religious schools as part of this tuition assistance program. That sound you hear is dominoes falling. So what happens next? 
the next big one is this court has already started going there is now that you're funding these religious institutions, can you tell them what to do? Can you tell them they can't discriminate against who they serve on the basis of their religion? Can you tell them they have to teach a you know primarily non-religious core curriculum that meets state standards if they happen to believe in their religion that this science stuff really isn't right? We've already got some setup to the fact that, at least in this Fulton versus Philly case, which had to do with adoption agencies, that, well, even if these institutions are receiving public financing, we may not be able to tell them what to do if they can claim that it violates their free exercise rights. And we've got another case in the pipeline, a domino that has not yet fallen, that has to do with a private school in Maryland receiving public financing that that has as part of its mission discriminating against LGBTQ kids. And they've brought their case that they should be able to engage in their discriminatory activity. They should not have to follow these state regulations if it goes against their religious beliefs. Taken together... Defining charter schools as private schools, clearing the way for religious charter schools, and their dramatic expansion of voucher programs around the country means that we could see a dramatic reordering of the school landscape, a future in which the schools decide who to take and who to reject. Preston says that for kids with special needs, kids who are still learning English, and kids in rural communities, that could mean that there are no schools that are required to educate them. At least in public schools, you know, you have laws that require states not only to admit these students, but then to educate these students while they are there. And understand that in public schools, you know, it's a fight. A lot of the times it's a fight to get them to do it. But you have laws in place such as IDEA and the um, Equal Education Opportunities Act to actually make sure that students get educated. They're not there in a voucher system. So what could happen in a rural setting is that students who may have that public school option, what happens if that option is no longer there? The only option that may be available for those students are schools that don't have the duty to educate them. And that is very concerning. As I mentioned earlier, Preston has been sounding the alarm about this for years. And he says that the first thing that policymakers and advocates, including charter school advocates, need to do is acknowledge that this question of whether a school is public or not really matters. This is a real nightmare scenario for them. There are certain kids who are just not going to get educated. That's really where a lot of this is headed, that those kids who just don't fit into that mold that these entities want to educate are really going to be in real trouble. And we need to be thinking about that going forward. You know, I certainly want us to see the public system continue, but whatever we have, we have to make sure that those kids are protected. People need to be thinking about the possible implications of their actions. And I think the worry that I have is that whenever I bring these issues up, they're just saying, oh, Green or Baker, we're all being alarmist. These sorts of things can never happen. Oh, they could. They sure could. And people need to be aware of that and plan accordingly. All of these questions about is a school public or private matter. And so I always argue that states need to be thinking about what are the ways that they can signal that they are indeed public so as to maintain control of these schools. 
Preston has a long list of steps that states should take to shore up the publicness of their schools, like codifying into law their responsibility of charters to accept all students. And he says that questions about the fiscal impact of school choice, including charter school growth, on school districts needs to be taken much more seriously. I think the first step that needs to be taken is that they need to think about the possible fiscal impacts on school districts that are underfunded. I've written a lot about urban school districts, many of them that are really, really underfunded and could be challenged by this type of encroachment, but also rural school districts. And rural school districts are in real danger from statewide voucher programs and also from charters. Many of these districts just don't have the funding to operate, you know, there are one or two public schools if you have an underfedded voucher program becoming a part of that. So I think that there needs to be consideration about fiscal impacts, and that needs to be thought about. One point that Bruce and Preston made in our conversation is that because charter schools are statutory creations, it's within the power of lawmakers to actually make them part of the public system. But Bruce says that that will require charter school advocates to admit that they have what our own Jack Schneider would call a runway problem. I'm waiting for those who are engaged in the the progressive movement of chartering years ago who kind of sat idly by and not even idly by. They, they liked the convenience of not having these regulations on disciplinary policy and all that too. I'm waiting for the moment when they turn sharply to try to rein this in. Preston ha- has certainly written about this and advised legislatures on this. And Preston and I have talked about you know, what kinds of charter policies might be written, for example, like the Maryland charter law, that might actually move charters to the government-operated public side of the line? And and when will the progressive advocates of chartering finally accept that they might need to go there? Or are they willing to just let this chaos ensue and hope that their own endeavor kind of remains immune or buffered from it? But until then, we're likely to hear a lot of rhetoric about the civil rights issue of our time— even as the effort to roll back the actual civil rights of kids accelerates. Yeah, the mind boggles. The mind totally boggles with this rhetorical twist. I mean, I always shake my head going like, well, you know, they always say that school choice is a civil rights issue of the 21st century. I'm going like, well, if you're going to make that argument, then you really should make sure that civil rights are protected, that students' constitutional rights are protected. It's just crazy. You know, and they're also saying that they're acting, again, for low-income children, for Black children, for brown children, and so on. But, you know, these protections matter. If you don't have these protections, then schools can act in ways that are very harmful for students. If we really care about these kids in the way that they say that they do, we're going to make sure that that those fair ways of treating students are still there. 
A big thanks to our special guests, Preston Green and Bruce Baker. If you want to keep up on the latest regarding this case and the many issues it raises, I strongly urge you to follow them both on Twitter. Preston is at Dr. Preston Green, and you'll find Bruce at School Finance 101. That's S-C-H-L Finance 101. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about what happens next for charter schools. We'll also be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Those universal school voucher programs that legislators are passing in one state after another, well, they also represent an enormous transfer of wealth to the wealthiest parents. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. So, Jack, my big project for the year is to try to help people understand that virtually everything we're seeing around education policy right now is an extension of what I think of as the great civil rights rollback, that you have people who decided basically starting in the 1960s that the civil rights revolution had gone too far, and boy, are they intent on rolling it back. And you have this point that you make a lot, and I don't mean repetitiously like the runway. But I just think it's a really good one. You say that, you know, at the heart of a lot of these policies is the replacement of rights with options. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this case, where they are essentially arguing that people don't have rights in this school, but they do have options to go to other schools. And I think it's important to point out why anybody would be in favor of that. And, you know, I think a simple way of thinking about it is just that rights need regulation and oversight and enforcement and government and taxation and bureaucracy. And the folks who are working to dismantle public education hate public education for a lot of reasons, but largely for those reasons. And options well, those can be advanced through the free market. And of course, the chief advocates for options over rights don't have children with disabilities who they need to seek an education for, who presently have rights in our system. And most of them aren't low-income people. Most of them aren't racially minoritized people. Most of them aren't linguistically marginalized people, right? These are people who will actually do just fine in a system of options. And they're working very hard to make the case that everyone will be well-served in a system where there are options. But what do you do if there are no options for you? What do you do if there's no school that you view as adequate or that will even accept your kid? Um, So what do you do if your local public school becomes a private school and adopts a policy that it doesn't want to have LGBTQ plus kids there. We've seen that happen. There's a school in Florida that essentially let families know that if they had LGBTQ plus students, they would be uh, disinvited from the school and um, that there was essentially nothing they could do about it because it was a private school and their vouchers would no longer be welcome there. And so I find this very scary. I'm no fan of bureaucracy. Um, I'm, I'm no believer that government uh, is a solution to problems. But I think that 
people who make the case against, you know, red tape uh, and against, you know, these burdensome regulations are not recognizing that that's actually the cost of ensuring that people get treated fairly. It's the cost of ensuring that, you know, to, to step back out of schools for a minute, um, to use a few obvious examples, that like our water isn't poisoned, right? Um, that we aren't irradiated in our environment, that we're not breathing lead in the air, right? Regulation's the cost of that. And in order to have regulation, you need government. And in order to have government, you need taxation. And I, I think the simplification of things to saying, you know, we're just going to peel back all this stuff you don't like without talking about everything else you lose there is is really disingenuous and dangerous. Well, also making, you know, government schools like the worst insult in the world and just hoping that no one ever notices that actually the, that's what the rights are attached to. Right. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So as you mentioned earlier in the episode, there are these just monster bills rolling through state after state. It's it's quite hard to keep up with them all. And by the time this episode uh, goes live, I imagine there will be more that, that governors in red states have, have signed. And so, Jack, once again, you have set me up perfectly for our Patreon edition that we call In the Weeds, because what we are going to do is we're going to lay out the way that these enormous school voucher bills are actually really wealth transfers from from the students who can least afford it and rural students to parents of means. And, and I think we're both convinced that that analysis has not gotten uh, enough attention. So if this interests you... And of course, you can take a break in between listening to all the bad news in this episode and then tuning in for a little more bad news. Just go to <laughs> patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter for a few dollars every month. You help us keep the podcast going and you also get some cool extras like a custom reading list that we do for every episode. If you subscribe at the $10 a month level, you get a copy of the paperback edition of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, which is just out and features a new preface where we acknowledge the things that we got wrong, like how bad things would get, how fast they would move, and you get to join us in the weeds. Did I leave anything out, Jack? No, but if you are not interested in making a wealth transfer like that, and if you would instead like to remain a member of uh, the free republic of this podcast, there are other ways to support the show. Um, make sure that you are a subscriber so that every time a new episode lands uh, out there on the internet, it automatically downloads to your device. If you haven't given us a rating, please do so. I think it helps people find the show. But of course, the best way to help people find the show is to let them know that you listen to it. We grow much more slowly than our corporate counterparts because we don't have an entire mechanism behind us pitching ads and embedding our podcast in other podcasts. We just make a product that we think is pretty good and then you all share it with each other. So please continue to do that. We love hearing from you. Uh, if you want to drop us a line, you can contact us through the show's website, haveyouheardpodcast.com. And thanks to all of the graduate students who submitted for our graduate student research contest. 
we are really excited to begin going through those and we'll be in touch with people who have advanced to the next round. Wow. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard.